Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to CBS News Roundup ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This is the CBS News Weekend Roundup. Coming up, the nation marks three years since the violent Capitol riots. In Iowa, a deadly school shooting just days into the new year. It was absolutely horrifying. In the Kaleidoscope with Allison Key segment, horrifying sexual violence against women from Israel to Haiti. The harms is perpetrated not only to women, but it's to society. I'm Allison Keyes in Washington. On January 6, 2021, a stunned nation and the world watched as an angry mob supporting Donald Trump stormed the U.S. Capitol as lawmakers were meeting to certify Democrat Joe Biden's victory over Trump in the 2020 election. Several in the crowd died, as did five police officers in the days and weeks after the attack, including Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick. His family spoke with CBS's Scott McFarlane. As he arrived at work three years ago, Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick's family says he had a bad feeling. Oh, absolutely. He was nervous. I don't think he knew what was coming, but he knew something was coming. Shortly after, a mob surrounded the U.S. Capitol. Some smashing windows, entering the Senate chamber, and assaulting officers. Sicknick tried to stop a crowd from pushing forward outside. They went through hell. Sicknick died the next day of multiple strokes. His family says the attack he and other officers suffered contributed to his death. Two men pleaded guilty in connection with the assault on Sicknick. One received an almost seven-year sentence. They're just two of the nearly 1,200 defendants in the largest federal criminal prosecution in U.S. history, with defendants from nearly all 50 states, including military veterans, members of far-right groups, even grandmothers, police officers, and firefighters. Three years ago, if I told you there'd be 1,200 defendants and more to come, would that have surprised you? I would have been shocked. Scott Fredrickson is a former Justice Department prosecutor. To find those people responsible, track them down, identify them, is our gargantuan job. Some of the defendants have argued they were acting on the directions of then-President Donald Trump. We're going to walk down to the Capitol. But their arguments have failed. 100% of the January 6th defendants to go on trial by jury have been at least partially convicted. This is probably the most heavily video documented case that I've ever seen. Everybody had a phone. Exactly. You've got social media of people before saying what they're going to do, and then you've got video of them doing it, and then them bragging about it afterwards. You know, that's not a scenario that 
is really winnable in any situation. Defense attorney David Benowitz has handled about a dozen January 6 cases and says the punishment is real for those who've lost jobs, friendships, and reputations. I would hope that no one who's gone through this here would ever think about engaging in this again. With Trump running to return to the White House, he continues to falsely say there was election fraud, a claim echoed by the rioters, and he promised to pardon them if he wins a second term. I don't call them prisoners, I call them hostages, they're hostages. Again, riling the tensions and reopening wounds three years later. Excuse my language, I think it's a bunch of bullshit. They broke the law. They broke several laws. They're on camera doing it. They were convicted in a court and sitting in jail because of it. Now to the White House, where CBS's Linda Kenyon tells us President Biden is marking the date with a warning. Well, the president says that uh, Donald Trump, and these are very strong words, Donald Trump is a threat to democracy. And since the uh, January 6th riot at the Capitol building, although he's been saying this for quite some time, now as election year draws near and uh, the campaign trail is going to be heating up for the president, uh, he is saying things in much stronger terms regarding Donald Trump. He's also saying that a lot of the GOP presidential hopefuls who are challenging Donald Trump for the presidential nomination are essentially apostles to the hard right extremism. And this comes at a time where the nation marks the third year since the riot at the U.S. Capitol building. And there are a lot of concerns that the election this year may be a repeat or certainly there will be uh, some unrest and some challenges to the results of the election if Donald Trump does, A, become the GOP presidential nominee, and B, he doesn't win in the general election. So there's a lot of concerns on Capitol Hill, a lot of concerns at the White House that uh, history may repeat itself if we have not learned from it. You know, as the saying goes, he who does not learn is doomed to repeat it. Really briefly, Linda, has I know he's been quoting this threat to democracy thing for a while. Is it resonating at all with voters or is there any data to show that yet? You know, I'm seeing a, a real effort on the part of the president to speak about this even more strongly than he has in the past. And whether it's resonating, it's hard to tell. You know, recent polls still show that there are a lot of voters, especially Republicans, who still doubt the outcome of the presidential election and still think that Donald Trump did, in fact, win the election, despite the fact that numerous court challenges, recounts and other examinations have proven quite the contrary. So, uh, yeah, is it resonating? Hard to tell. You have to consider the methodology of the recent polls and the fact that it is still uh, very far away from actual election day. But it does show to to uh, analysts, at least, that the president of the United States has a bit of an uphill battle to convince those who uh, think otherwise. That's CBS's Linda Kenyon. The unemployment rate remains low in the nation. CBS's Bradley Blackburn with more. Hotels, restaurants, and other businesses in the leisure and hospitality sector added 40,000 jobs in December. The healthcare industry also grew, bringing on 38,000 positions. Altogether, the economy added a better than expected 216,000 jobs last month. However, numbers for October and November were revised down significantly. 
Still, the economy finished 2023 with 2.7 million more jobs than the previous year. CBS News business analyst Jill Schlesinger. So I think we finished the year as we started, defying expectations. Wages also increased in December and millions of workers are receiving a raise this month. More than 20 states boosted the minimum wage, some pushing it to over $20 an hour. Restaurant owner Leah Gaccione is glad her employees are getting a raise, but she's facing a decision. It puts the business in quite the predicament where you have to raise prices to compensate for that, but people don't like when you raise prices to compensate for that. Higher prices are something the Federal Reserve is trying to stop. The board has kept interest rates at a high level in an attempt to bring inflation down from the current level of just over 3% to 2%. Coming up, a deadly school shooting in Iowa. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keyes. Just days into the year, a deadly school shooting in Iowa. A sixth grader was killed and four others were hurt. CBS is at O'Keefe. Listen to your children pray. In Perry, Iowa, a somber vigil capped a tragic day. And you really have to start thinking like, oh, this could happen at my school, this could happen here. It began when multiple law enforcement agencies rushed to the scene shortly after 7.30 Thursday morning. Units, we've got an active shooter situation at Perry High School. Local police say they arrived within seven minutes of receiving the call and came upon a grisly scene. Appears to be self-inflicted. Police say they soon determined the shooter, 17-year-old Dylan Butler, had taken his own life. But not before he killed one sixth grader and wounded five others, including four students and the school's principal. And he didn't stop there. Officers located during the search of the school an improvised explosive device. The state fire marshal and the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms rendered the device safe. Investigators say the shooter was armed with a pump-action shotgun and small-caliber handgun and appeared to act alone. It was absolutely horrifying. Among the survivors, Jody Kurth's stepson, Xander, who was grazed by a bullet during the shooting. One of the worst moments of my entire life, but the best phone call I got was saying that they were okay. The incident comes less than two weeks before the GOP primaries are set to kick off here in Iowa. The state's Republican governor, Kim Reynolds, visited the scene Thursday. How should the candidates running for president talk about what happened today well, and them, the issue of schools yeah, violence generally? I'll let them decide how they're going right. to talk about it. All the surviving victims were hospitalized and authorities say their injuries aren't considered 
life-threatening. Investigators don't yet have any sense of a motive, but they are looking into some social media posts the shooter made around the time of the shooting. At O'Keefe, CBS News, Perry, Iowa. The Republican presidential candidates did speak out about the shooting as they looked for any way to cut former President Trump's lead in Iowa. Gun violence is top of mind in Iowa, where there was the latest deadly school shooting just days ahead of the caucuses. I think you want it to be instant background checks. We could go and take away a certain kind of gun today, and that would make you feel better today. But a week from now, there'd be another shooting. Instead, why don't we do the hard work and deal with the mental health? Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former Ambassador Nikki Haley are scrambling to catch up to the front runner, former President Donald Trump, despite his mounting legal troubles. We're putting the future of the Republican Party and the future of the nation, perhaps, in the hands of 12 jurors. This comes as a new report from House Democrats, says Trump received at least $7.8 million from foreign governments in payments to his businesses while in office. According to the report from 2017 to 2020, the government of China spent more than $5.5 million at Trump properties, including the Trump hotels in Las Vegas and Washington and New York. I love China. The biggest bank in the world is from China. You know where their United States headquarters is located? In this building, in Trump Tower. The Trump Organization has said it voluntarily donated proceeds from foreign governments to the Treasury Department, totaling more than $300,000, far lower than the millions the committee details in its report. I have an admission to make. Meanwhile, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie is dismissing calls from rivals' allies to drop out and released a new one-minute ad saying endorsing Trump in 2016 was a mistake. Well, I was wrong. Robert Costa, CBS News, Washington. Now to the situation at the border as the Biden administration pushes back against Republican claims that the president hasn't done enough to solve the problem and New York City Mayor Eric Adams is suing over Texas Governor Greg Abbott's busing of migrants to the Big Apple. The blame game goes on for the unprecedented number of migrant crossings at the southern border. There's only one reason why this is happening. Uh, and that's because Joe Biden has eliminated all of the four policies that Donald Trump put in place uh, that led to the lowest illegal border crossings in 40 years. Texas Governor Greg Abbott says his state can't handle any more migrants, so he continues to bust them elsewhere. And New York City Mayor Eric Adams announced he is suing 17 charter bus companies for more than $700 million, demanding they help cover the cost to provide for about 34,000 migrants who have been transported to the city over the last two years. These companies have violated state law by not paying the cost of caring for these migrants. The White House blames House Republicans for blocking a funding package that included $14 billion for border security. The president understands that there's a problem at the border. He put forth on his first day something to deal with that problem. House Republicans are in no mood to negotiate. Instead, they are trying to impeach the Secretary of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas, who blasted the lawmakers on CBS Mornings. I don't have time um, 
for words uh, like that. We are focused here on solutions. Everyone agrees that the system is broken. And what we are doing is enforcing our laws. Late Thursday, Governor Abbott called that lawsuit against the bus companies he uses baseless. And a group of bipartisan senators met to try to hash out an immigration deal. But House Republicans have already signaled they won't pass any measure that doesn't include all their demands, like tighter asylum laws and more deportations. Weijia Zhang, CBS News, the White House. Better get ready from the East Coast to the Mid-South as the first major winter storm is expected this weekend. This likely means a travel mess and dangerous road conditions. Remember two years ago? Along I-95 from Northern Virginia all the way down to Caroline County, traffic at a standstill as snow and ice covered the roadway. It was the storm that sort of crippled our region for a while, right? Regina Ally is the public and government affairs manager for AAA, and she says if you do have to drive in snow or ice this winter, be sure to drive slowly to account for lower traction. Also, apply the gas slowly to regain traction and avoid skids. Increasing your following distance is another important tip. Five to six seconds will give you more time if you need to stop. And know your brakes. Keep the heel of your foot on the floor and use the ball of your foot to apply firm, steady pressure on the brake pedal. But one step you can take now, check your vehicle and make sure it's ready before you head out. You want to make sure that your battery's in good shape. Your tires are especially important. The tread depth and the pressure uh, and uh, your fluid. So those are the, the three top things that we really want to remind drivers to make sure that you have your vehicles checked out, particu particularly if you plan on heading out and ahead of the winter storm, possibly. Another step to be sure to have if you head out this weekend, an emergency kit in your vehicle. That kit should include non-perishable food items, water, a phone charger, even a blanket. Items you may need if you get stuck on the side of the roadway. WTVR-TV's Caroline Colburn. Coming up, the latest on the Israel-Hamas war and rising tensions in the region. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keyes. The Biden administration Friday sent its top diplomat back to the Middle East as the Israel-Hamas war sparks growing instability in the area. CBS's Jared Hill. Secretary of State Antony Blinken headed to Tel Aviv. One stop on a Middle East tour amid growing concerns of rising tensions in the region. I believe we need to make progress on continuing to try to keep the conflict from escalating. Blinken's visit after thousands filled the streets of Beirut for the funeral of a top Hamas commander killed by an Israeli airstrike in Lebanon. A member of the Hamas media office saying the aggression will be met with a strong response. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, meeting with Republican Senator Lindsey Graham in Tel Aviv, reiterated Israel's goal of destroying Hamas. That will apply maximum power with maximum precision everywhere that's needed. And we have your back. Thank you. Military officials discuss a shift in strategy, scaling down in northern Gaza while continuing to fight Hamas in the south, with soldiers on the borders they say for at least the next year. This as the humanitarian crisis in Gaza continues. Water and sanitary conditions in short supply at the Jabalia refugee camp. In the city of Rafa, in the southern part of the Gaza Strip, civil workers search for survivors in what's left of this home. Two killed and dozens injured in an Israeli airstrike here, according to health officials. Jared Hill, CBS News. 
Japan is dealing with twin disasters this week after a fiery plane crash involving two aircraft at one of Tokyo's busiest airports and the search for those still missing after an earthquake that has killed dozens so far. The United States is preparing logistical military support. At the moment of collision, a fireball. Then the Japan Airlines Airbus sped along the runway in flames. The transport ministry said the passenger jet had authorization to land here. The Coast Guard Dash 8 did not. A transcript shows the control tower told the Japan Airlines pilot he was cleared to land, while the Coast Guard pilot was told to taxi to a holding point. The evacuation of the Airbus was textbook. With only three of the eight emergency exits accessible, the cabin crew got 379 people off the plane safely. Investigators are combing the wreckage, in part to see how the new generation carbon fiber body withstood the blaze. An inquiry will now examine the aircraft's voice recorders and interview the pilots who both survived. The Coast Guard plane had been headed on a relief mission to the area of western Japan devastated by an earthquake on New Year's Day. Destroyed roads have slowed the rescue effort, which now includes 2,000 military personnel and more dogs able to sniff out both the living and the dead. A race is now on to locate more than 100 people still believed to be buried in the ruins. There are huge obstacles facing the rescue crews. Not only is there no power, no water, no internet or cell service in many of the areas, but there are constant aftershocks, which makes it very difficult for the crews to enter these ruined buildings safely. Elizabeth Palmer, CBS News, Tokyo. The CDC says seasonal respiratory illnesses are rising across the nation. Some 31 states in Washington, D.C. are reporting high or very high levels of the flu. Three-month-old Reese Prater is hospitalized more than 300 miles from home at Cook Children's Medical Center in Fort Worth, Texas, because it was the closest pediatric intensive care bed available. It must have been pretty serious. It was, yeah. He um, was on oxygen almost immediately when we got to the hospital. Um, his breathing was quickly getting you know, worse and heavier. Prater has RSV. Back home in Amarillo, his three-year-old brother is sick with the flu. Cases like theirs overwhelming children's hospitals. In the past 24 hours, our emergency rooms and urgent cares have seen over 600 kids. That's a kid being checked in every two minutes to be seen by a provider. It's not just Texas. Across the country, there have been more than 73,000 flu hospitalizations and more than 4,500 deaths, including 20 children. But fewer than half of children received this year's flu vaccine, the lowest in five years. RSV infections are dropping, but flu and COVID cases continue to rise. What's being done to accommodate the influx of patients? We've had to open up a second unit that was under renovations. Sometimes we have kids who are waiting to go to our ICUs who are waiting in the emergency room because we do not have any beds available. With kids heading back to school after a break, Hospitals are bracing for a holiday hangover, another wave of pediatric patients. For Reese's mom, Marnie, though, there's an end in sight. Are you at the point you finally feel like you can exhale or not yet? Yes, I think so. Um, this morning was probably that turning point for me when we got there and she said he's been off oxygen for 40 minutes and he's doing really good. Doctors here at Cook Children's Medical Center stress it's not too late to get a flu shot for you or your children.
Janet Shanley in CBS News, Fort Worth. If both red lights and pollution annoy you, the tech giant Google is trying to help. CBS has been Tracy with our continuing series, Protecting the Planet. So we're at an intersection. We're stopped. Most of us hate getting stuck at red lights. When I see a red light, I'm annoyed. <laughs> but Juliet Rothenberg is not like most of us. When I look at a red light, I see opportunity. Her job with Google is to make traffic lights, like those at three intersections in Seattle, more efficient and less annoying. Shift a few seconds from here to there, and that shift can have a big impact. Google's new Project Greenlight system uses its vast maps database and artificial intelligence to optimize traffic lights around the world. Are these intersections coordinated already? So they're actually not. The system suggests changes and city engineers then decide if they want to implement them. We had one case where we moved four seconds from a north-south street to an east-west street for a particular time of day, and then that can help reduce some of that stop-and-go traffic. Once the system gives you a recommendation, how quickly could you make an adjustment? You know, it can take us five minutes. Seattle is the first U.S. city to try this, but the program is being tested out at 70 intersections in 13 global cities, impacting 30 million car trips per month. Google claims it could reduce stop-and-go traffic by up to 30 percent. It means a lot for drivers, and it also means a lot for emissions. She says half of vehicle emissions at intersections come from cars accelerating after stopping, and Google thinks it can reduce those by 10 percent. It matters because transportation is the number one source of planet warming pollution in the U.S. So intersections are a really good leverage point for tackling climate. Google provides its service for free and plans to expand to thousands of cities, creating what it calls a green wave for drivers. I feel like I engage with the red wave a lot more often than the green wave. <laughs> We're trying to change that. Ben Tracy, CBS News, Seattle. Coming up in the Kaleidoscope with Allison Keyes segment, the horror of sexual violence against women. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. Welcome to the Kaleidoscope with Allison Keyes segment, where every week we discuss issues including race. This time we're talking about sexual violence against women and armed conflict, which is now recognized as a war crime. But that hasn't stopped the horrors being visited on women, whether during the Hamas terror attack on Israel or in Haiti amid the reign of armed gangs or in war-torn Sudan. We warn you, some of the accounts are graphic and tough to hear. We asked Macarena Saez, executive director of the Women's Rights Division for the International Advocacy Group, Human Rights Watch, why this is happening. Maybe the first thing to, to say about rape in conflict is that this is not new, unfortunately. And what it's maybe new is how uh, much we, we talk about it. And then that, of course, is sort of like a good news within the context of a really horrible situation in conflicts around the world. 
Um, so sexual violence in general, it's a very unfortunate but common um, characteristic of uh, most conflicts and um, actually in all conflicts, it's unlikely that there is a conflict that will not have also sexual violence incorporated as it is. The differences is how, in what context and how uh, sexual violence is used and deployed. So in some cases it is instructed and you have a directive to use sexual violence as a weapon of war. And in others is um, a crime of opportunity where there is no directive, but there is also not control and not prohibition basically of uh, using sexual violence. And the type of the deployment of sexual violence is very difficult to understand until um, uh, later uh, after conflict has passed or is uh, really going on. So we can't really know exactly how in a conflict, and that is no different in, in the case of um, uh, the conflict and what we're seeing in Gaza, for example, how sexual violence is being deployed or is being used. But what we can say is that Unfortunately, when there is no um, good, uh, when, when the, the structures of a society are not operating because they are under a state of conflict, uh, the possibilities of increase in sexual violence are very high. And this is also partly, I understand, because obviously survivors are facing stigmas, right? I mean, women and this is graphic, but but women who have been shot in the vagina, women who have had nails driven, driven into their thighs, and if they survive any of this, then they face a stigma, and so do their families. Is that right? Well, that is a problem with sexual violence throughout uh, the world, and, and as long as we live in societies that don't value women as equal beings as men, and, um, you know, the sense of modesty and sexual behavior is attached to the value of women, the stigma that comes with sexual violence even increases. So instead of being treated as a survivor of a horrific uh, situation, um, women often face the uh, being um, you know, ostracized from their own communities. And, um, and so they, they, you know, they face even more isolation. So, what we know about what happened on October 7 is is horrific and uh, there are accounts of sexual violence that happened that day how pervasive how much uh, we know it's uh, it's it will take months and it will take years to really understand as with any conflict to understand how pervasive sexual violence was used but what we know already it's very horrific and is enough to understand that um, sexual violence in conflict amount can can amount to a war crime, and it can um, amount to a crimes against humanity. And it has to be investigated, and there has to be justice and accountability, which is what survivors and the victims, the families of the victims, uh, need. And this is also happening to women in Haiti, right, who basically can't leave their homes in some parts of Port-au-Prince without being attacked, and also to women in Sudan? Yes, as I said, it is an unfortunately permanent characteristic of, of conflict that women will suffer um, a particular types of harms when it comes to 
um, not having a uh, rule of law or not having an operative state. So what we see in Haiti is an increase in sexual violence. Human Rights Watch has particularly reported this situation and how it escalated in 2022 and 2023 um, with you know gang groups that are controlling different parts of the territory and part of how they um, show their control, they show how much uh, their power is, is by inflicting these overall fear in the society. And uh, one of the instruments to instill that fear in society is by raping women. So what happens with the harms of sexual violence is that you have the body of women are the, um, the space of the violation of rights, but the harms is, is perpetrated not only to women, but it's to society, to telling the rest of the society who are not being sexually assault, assaulted at that moment that they have control over society because women are viewed as, you know, part of, of the control of their sexuality is so important in patriarchal societies, which is unfortunately how we live in most of the world today that um, that um, fighters usually use the women's bodies as a as an instrument to show not only women that they can be violated but that the society is not in control of their own destinies i wonder what you think of the idea that there isn't enough being said about this right now i mean i, I feel like and women, I, women I've, I've talked to about this are saying they feel like there should be a worldwide outcry, and I'm not sure that there is. Is there? So it's interesting because um, there is a lot more recognition today, as I mentioned, than let's say 50 years ago or you know 100 years ago. Even though sexual violence has been prominently used in conflict uh, throughout history, you know, you, there is no piece of of uh, um, uh, account or historical account of any in, any words that will not talk about women being raped and being you know maimed and and being sexually assaulted in horrific ways. Um, so in a way, there is a conscious that it's being created that sexual violence cannot be normal and had been so far treated as a normal part of conflict. And normal um, is sort of like has been equated to inevitable. But it's neither normal or inevitable. And I think that we are seeing now a lot more in terms of, for example, from, you know, from um, the er the late uh, 1980s and um, early 2000s, uh, at least a recognition that sexual violence can amount to a war crime. And we have some uh, uh, justice initiatives uh, that have been uh, supported and we have, you know, the um, special tribunals for uh, round, Rwanda and uh, the former Yugoslavia, for example, um, recognizing sexual violence in those instances. So I think that we have made progress. Um, what I think it's very important is to understand that the problem with sexual violence is that it's normalized and it's so prominent in our daily lives when the state is operating that, of course, when the state is not operating, when you are in a situation of conflict, whatever is kind of normal 
in situations of, of daily lives, it will become even more terrific and horrific and more prominent when you don't have a state operating. So as long as we normalize sexual violence on a regular basis on our daily lives, we won't be able also to really attack and stop sexual violence in conflicts if we are not capable of, of stopping it on our daily lives on, you know, even um, states and governments that are operating uh, normally. Wow. One last question. Is there anything that can be done for survivors to help them recover, recover from these terrifying and horrific assaults? Yes, I think that the first thing that it's important to understand is that when we talk about sexual violence, the needs and the rights of survivors have to be at the first, at, at, at the forefront. And that means that we can't push anyone to speak about what happened to them. We can't just be, you know, media and organizations and governments. We The, the way that we have to seek justice is by looking at the needs and the rights of survivors first and uh, respect their privacy, respect their dignity. So the first thing that we need to really think about is services, how we can ensure that governments uh, and organizations and, and families and relatives and friends, everyone around, people who you have been suspected, that people suspect that they have been uh, um, subjects of, of sexual violence, we need to think about services, how we ensure their well-being, that they feel that they are not alone, but it, in their own terms. We don't control those terms. And, and I think that it's very important not to manipulate sexual violence, not to politicize sexual violence, to ensure that the victims and the, the, the families of the victims and the survivors' rights and needs are at the forefront. That's Macarena Saez at Human Rights Watch. Coming up, why a Pennsylvania dog is in big trouble. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keyes. After the holidays, some who have done too much decide to cut back in a big way. WTLC-TV's Anna Stansfield. After all the holiday parties and family get-togethers throughout December, many people are trying to start the new year off alcohol-free. It's an opportunity for people to figure out, um, is this something I want to continue? And how did it make me feel to go through a month without consuming this, this uh, beverage? If you're participating, Mary Jo Horton, the behavioral health manager at Memorial, says a good tip is to think of the times when you normally would drink alcohol and try to do a different activity instead. We know that ceasing behavior is very difficult. Replacement behavior is very lovely. She also recommends that you should plan that activity with another person to help hold you accountable. Whether it's going for a walk or, you know, reading a book or going to whatever it may be, you want to pick an activity that you enjoy and then having somebody expecting you to be there. Another helpful tip is to choose a mocktail when going out. It's something folks at Ardsley Station in Savannah make sure to include on their menu and say they're expecting more people to get them this month. We'll definitely see an uptick in terms of folks coming in choosing to maybe 
shift a little away from the, the hustle and bustle and the partying of the holiday season and become a little bit more healthier in the new year. Kopka says mocktails aren't just a trend he sees in January, but throughout the entire year. The revenue that was generated from those zero-proof cocktails was significant for us and, again, enough for us to have a smaller section on our menu dedicated just to those particular um, non-alcoholic drinks. And for those participating, Horton suggests that you keep a log of how you feel throughout the month. If they have this data of, you know what, my body felt this way, my, my thoughts, my productivity, my energy level was this way, it gives them a real clear sense that even if they slip up during that month, they might want to consider returning. From forbearance to indulgence in Atlanta, WANF-TV's Amanda Rose. Crispy cookie outside, chocolatey center inside. Kamal Grant is in pastry heaven, tasting this cookie filled with chocolatey goodness in the center. But it's so much more than a delicious treat. Brings me back. Brings me back. They're called Magic Middles, and they're the Atlanta-based pastry chef's favorite cookies from his 90s childhood, tasting just like the cookies his grandmother used to bake. She would make this shortbread cookie, and then she'd stuff it with chocolate, and then when it would bake, it would come out and be ooey-gooey chocolate. So then when she passed away, I really didn't see it anymore. But then, you know, going in the store, Keebler made a cookie version of it, and I was like, that looks very similar. Inspired by his love of all all things desserts. The Navy veteran graduated culinary school and opened his very own bakery called Sublime Donuts. Years later, Grant says he made a heartbreaking discovery, learning Magic Middles was no longer on store shelves. So I went and looked for the trademark. It was discontinued. It was a dead trademark. So I said, you know what? I can bring it back. I ate so many Magic Middles as a kid, and now I'm a baking genius. I can remember back in those memories and reverse engineer the product. Grant spent the past five years bringing the nostalgic treat back to life, hoping to bring joy to customers who love the cookies as much as he did. So I remember going to the lady and she used to sell them at 25 cents a pop. It's, it's definitely classic and reminiscent of a child, a great childhood. The entrepreneur may have accomplished his goal, but says his work is far from over. Grant hopes to put magic middles on store shelves across the country, showing the beloved brand is back and it's better than ever. When you go to reach into the cookie jar, it's not because you're hungry. You reach in the cookie jar because you want to make yourself happy. So we're in the happiness business and that's all I want to be in. From feasting to famine in New Orleans, WWL's McFerris. The plates are overflowing with fresh Louisiana catches at Kenner Seafood, but the shelves, the conveyor belt, baskets, and boilers normally filled with crawfish are empty. This is the time when we, we basically have lots of crawfish that we'd be sending out, 10 to 20 sacks of crawfish on a daily basis. The phones are ringing off the hook. Still no crawfish with no date promise. Business is off 35%. Restaurants they ship to nationwide as well as local customers have been asking why since the season started before Thanksgiving. Did you know there was a crawfish shortage? No, no I didn't, but I know that I haven't been able to eat them. I've come to the realization that uh, it's hard to get but I'm always looking for it. Add this year's shortage to recent financial hits, COVID, fuel equipment and mandated labor cost hikes, and the lost sales to cheaper, lower quality imported tails. The state's nearly $650 million crawfish industry is in trouble. Without government assistance or some kind of aid, uh, I don't know how many uh, crawfish 
processors or farmers are going to be left. Crawfish producers say that we may be getting some crawfish in in the next few weeks, but they're going to be smaller and they're going to be expensive, maybe more than $7 a pound live. But as production ramps up, then the price should come down. But will it be in time for the Super Bowl, Mardi Gras, and Lent? All just around the corner. Finally, a Pennsylvania dog discovers that too much of some things can get one into an uncomfortable situation. Pup parents Clayton and Carrie Law say their seven-year-old golden doodle Cecil is normally a very good boy. Except for the time he ate $4,000 in cash left on a kitchen counter meant to pay for a new fence. It was about literally 30 minutes. The money was just strewn on the floor like half-eaten bills and the envelope was completely gone. So <laughs> she's really good at researching stuff. So she's like Googling dog ate money. What, what do you do kind of thing? It happened last month. The Pennsylvania couple quickly called their vet, who told them Cecil likely just needed to be monitored for a few days. As long as he's eating and going to the bathroom normally, don't worry about it. What was the reaction of the vet and the manager at the bank yeah. when you explained what happened? Honestly, nobody was super shocked. I guess this happens a lot. The bank told them they could tape together any bills with visible serial numbers and they'd replace them. The two knew what had to happen next if they were going to recoup their money. So you sifted through vomit and droppings. Yes. <laughs> I was like, I'm just going to follow him and see if anything comes out for yep. a couple of days. And it, it, did. it did. Yeah. They recovered $3,550. Were you guys angry at all? No, I... I don't think you can ever really get angry at a pet for doing this kind of a thing. We were just happy he was okay. It's hard to be mad after all. He too had a rough day. Good boy. Cristian Benavides, CBS News. That's it for the Weekend Roundup. Thanks for listening. We want to get your feedback. Send us your thoughts and story ideas to weekendroundup at cbsnews.com. As always, you can find the program online on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. Sarah Fishman is a technical supervisor, and Alan Peng provides production assistance. Tara Lipinski is the executive producer. Have a great week. I'm Allison Keyes, CBS News. If you like CBS News Roundup, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. 
Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.